Hi, welcome back to the Deep Fade. My name is Zach, joined today by not producer Raven, but producer Brendan. Hello. How are you doing? I'm awesome. How are you? I am outstanding. Uh, today, day on the eve of wildcard weekend. So we're going to go through uh, a lot of those games, look at some of the strengths, weaknesses, X-Factors, Achilles heels, whatever, for uh, each team in the playoff field, uh, starting with the AFC. But before we get to that, um, since we last recorded, a lot of stuff has happened as far as the coaching carousel has gone. Uh, there's even there's a story. It was kind of funny. It's not funny, but uh, where former coaches were talking about Black Monday, and it's somewhat ironic because I think the only person that ended up applying to was Arthur Smith, and for him it was like the second the Falcons game ended. But yeah, on Tuesday and Wednesday we lost in total, whether by firing or I don't know, realignment in the organization. Uh, Arthur Smith, Pete Carroll, Mike Vrabel, Bill Belichick, and then not the NFL, but Nick Saban too, which is its own separate thing. But I wanted to run through and kind of look at their resume and just have a referendum on what we think of them as a coach, whether or not they're going to still be coaching and so where it should be. But first, um, I don't think I've ever actually gotten – your opinion, Brendan, on Arthur Smith? Ooh. Well, I think he's kind of just like a discount Mike Vrabel, in my opinion. I mean, Vrabel, you already know, uh, was coaching over him. He was Vrabel's uh, offensive coordinator. Right. I I don't know. I don't really love what he's doing with the Falcons, and I, I really, you know, like most people, want to see them prosper, or their, their star players really get to prosper without whatever he's doing with them. I just wish he wasn't so attracted to Tyler Algier. <laughs> and whatever tight ends they have. Like or the ones that aren't Kyle Smith. Pitts. Well, no, because it's like, it makes no sense. And honestly, if you're Arthur Blank and you're looking at it from afar, like I get it, let the coach be autonomous in his decisions. But Algier had like 190 snaps and Bijan had like 260. Granted, that's with a game where he only played one because he was sick. But even then, like, there was the whole hubba blue that he was on the injury report as being sick, and that's its own separate thing. But I honestly thought going into the last few weeks that he had done enough. I I, I do sincerely think that the whole thing with Dennis Allen at the end kind of sealed his fate because he knew that if he didn't win that game, he was going to be on the hot seat. And then after it ended the way it did, them losing by 30, he's like, oh, fuck it, I'm just going <laughs> to... Yeah. I kind of saw it from his perspective, too, in the sense that it was like, yeah, he definitely knows that he's probably going to get let go. He may as well let his true emotions shine in this one. I think he was a really good offensive coordinator in Tennessee. And, I mean, I just think that he's going to go wherever Vrabel goes. Mm. But, I mean, he's not of much consequence. For people who are, I mean, speaking of Vrabel, Gerard Mayo was just named the Patriots coach this morning, which takes away the obvious destination for a lot of people. So knowing that, I think the main two in my head were either the Chargers, because I think he makes more sense than Belichick or even Pete Carroll, and I guess the Raiders if Antonio Pierce is not brought back. Hmm. Yeah, Because no. he seems like the perfect Raiders coach. Uh, we're talking about Vrabel, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, 
I, I would be very interesting to see him go to the Chargers because they don't really have many assets at, and in the running game. And you he know seems he a lot like power run. He seems a lot like what Staley was supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Staley is, is like the defensive mind kind of guy. And, you know, that that almost never goes well. So he's the intern that got promoted way too fast, which <laughs> I kind of don't uh, I kind of don't blame him to, to use a, a different comparison. Uh, I know another guy who's getting head coaching interviews, or at least will be, is Raheem Morris. And he was the coach of the Bucks forever ago. Mm. But it was kind of the same thing where he was in his 30s and he just got hired way too fast as a defensive coordinator and they sucked. And then, I mean, it's not like the Bucks got any better after that. So I'm not saying the same thing is going to happen because I think Mike Vrabel has proven pedigree going 54 and 45 in six seasons with the Titans when. I probably picked them to have like five wins at least three of those seasons. So that's a testament to him. And I think that of the people left, if it's not Belichick, then he's kind of perfect. Yeah, no. I mean, I didn't think it was a good move on Tennessee's part at all. They didn't really give him anything to work with this season. My my guess is that he just didn't want to rebuild. Yeah. And, you know, when you're a coach of that caliber, I think it's weird to fire him when I, I think you could have traded him. Mm. I don't think it would have been that hard, but. Yeah, really probably not. Uh, another guy that I was, I guess, shocked. I don't know. Pete Carroll went 137-89 and 89 in 14 seasons with the Seahawks. And I remember reading a stat where I believe over the course of all those games, it they never got like catastrophically blown out. Like It was always within a few scores where even like, even like Belichick over the courses of his time there or Vrabel, like there's a, a 33 to three stinker, but he was everything to them. Like, I, I don't know. It's not that he is, he is Mike Tomlin or, or Belichick even where he's just a lifer in the organization. Seahawks fans would get frustrated with him all the time. And there was always the discourse of his obsession with establishing the run and like going back to Marshawn Lynch, but even when uh, when Russ was, like, when half the internet was convinced that Carroll was the problem and not Wilson, uh, because Pete Carroll was obsessed with getting Chris Carson touches, like, even then they were winning. So mm. I, I don't know why now is the time unless you think you can get Jim Harbaugh. Mm. I mean, I don't know why they would think that he's... He's proven over and over that he's going to choose to be at Michigan over the years. I think that because there was a, an interview where he said that he was going to push back spring practice a bit. And I think that he has been very purposefully dodging the question and not giving a concrete answer on whether or not he's going to go back. I think that ultimately, like Saban, it would be kind of silly for him to leave. But I think I think Pete Carroll said it best where... Once you go 14 and 0, you want to go 16 and 0, and then, or in this case, 17 and 0, hmm. because now he's finally achieved what he wanted to at Michigan, no less, where he is a deity. Now he, maybe he wants to come back. Hmm. That if is he, a good. That is a good point. If he's as insane as he seems to be, then I would be surprised if some part of him doesn't want it. Because if Pete Carroll can do it, you gotta think Jim Harbaugh thinks he can do it. Yeah. So. Yeah, we are talking about Jim Harbaugh. We are talking here. about Jim Harbaugh. 
this morning, uh, Carol also said that he would be open to coaching elsewhere. And look, I'll, I'll jump to Belichick here too. I think either he or Belichick are kind of perfect for the Falcons to be this senior executive, like battle-tested coach. You don't have to, I think that like Ben Johnson would be fun because you're bringing in a certified offensive mind to finally coalesce the talent at hand here. Even their offensive line is gotten pretty damn good with Lindstrom, I think, making second team all pro and it's a solid group. Yeah, he's been a rock. Defense got better. Uh Terrell's still awesome. Like everything is there where if you bring it in and supercharge the offense, they could I think they would easily win the NFC South because I think they just pretty apparently more talented than everyone. Yeah, I mean, there's not much comp going on there. They just need they just need someone taking snaps. That's and not. I'm operating. I'm pretty much operating under the assumption that they'll trade for Fields because it just makes too much sense. Um, I wouldn't trade your first for it, and so that's a whole separate discussion. Also, I I'm not gonna get into it because it'll be the next ten minutes. But firing Luke Getzey and not Eberflus is a like just nauseating half measure that oh. is gonna. Unless they can hire someone equivalent to like a Johnson or at least bring in an offensive mind that does not actively try to throw games. Um, without that, you're just setting up Williams for failure. And honestly, if they finish 7-10 and 10 again next year, then you're going to fire him anyway. Why not just start fresh? Not, a, not an Eberflus believer, I see. No, like, okay, nope, nope, not doing it. Matt um, no, but like seriously, you think that firing the offensive coordinator is going to fix everything? When also, I think that them keeping Eberflus, I think I was talking to my dad about it actually, where I think that it actually strengthens the case that they're going to move on from Fields because why would you keep the coach and then not the offensive coordinator, but then also keep the quarterback because. I think that's just adding another factor for people to blame on the Bears rather than put at the feet of Fields. And again, I went through it earlier this week, how I don't completely blame him, but it's time. And he's from Georgia. There you go. Anyway. Yeah, I think they gave them, or I gave, the front office probably gave him an ultimatum in some capacity where it was like, Either you, this guy goes or you go. So I think that's probably what happened. And look, I, I know that they improved by wins and their defense got better, but it looked like shit against the Packers. Mm. And that's kind of the ultimate litmus test. Uh, but otherwise, I do think you might be right there where Eberflus was probably given the same decision as Vrabel. It's just that he's not Mike Vrabel. So he said, yep, uh, get rid of him. I'll do whatever you say. Yeah, he doesn't have to leverage. I think that, I mean, Pete Carroll just moving down the coast and taking over the Chargers is another obvious one. But, I mean, these guys are both in their 70s. Like, they want to take over a team that's one piece away or has all the pieces already. And if I think if the Cowboys lose to the Packers, McCarthy will get fired. And mm. that's where Belichick will end up going. But... Absent of that happening, I think it's going to be Carol or Belichick in that job. And 
Maybe Pete Carroll does stay on with the Seahawks. I don't know. I, it doesn't seem realistic to me, but anything can happen here. Yeah, no, I also like what the Falcons are doing. I just, like I said, they just need somebody under center taking snaps. I think they got to do what they got to do to get somebody competent. Even if that's taking, like, no, I don't want to say, like, take McCarthy or Bonix because I just don't believe in them as NFL quarterbacks, but yeah, that's a whole separate deal. They need to be behind someone. And then before we move on to some of the strengths and weaknesses of the AFC going into the weekend, just an ode to, to Nick Saban, who the entire week has been about belaboring his achievements, but he went 292-72-1. Did you see what Marlon Humphrey said as soon as he announced it? <laughs> no, I didn't. No, I see he, most of what he says. He but. said, uh, it's like, I would have been immediately in the portal once I saw that Saban retired. And I'm like, yeah, because I think a five-star wide receiver com- decommitted immediately. Yeah, no, I saw. I did see that. I also saw them chanting anyone but Dabo. So, uh, good luck. For Saban, I mean, like, imagine if John Calipari won seven more titles, and that's what he's done by creating a true NFL pipeline out there. Since 2009, the year he was hired, Alabama produced 123 NFL draft picks, which is more than any other program. And from the Athletics' Max Olson, who wrote a story about it, those players have combined to make more than $2.26 billion during their NFL careers. So... He is a kingmaker of his own right, and outside of quarterbacks, which, I mean, remains to be seen, they still haven't produced a great NFL one, if you're, unless you're calling two a great, which is a whole separate issue, but he is the last true, like, I don't know, emperor of a college program or an NFL program that we have, especially now that Belichick got fired, like... Who's left that is anywhere comparable to to Saban or the influence they held? I don't think anyone. Yeah, not in college. And as far as who will replace him, I do not feel uh, qualified enough to make that prognostication. But I would guess Kalen DeBoer, just because he's one of the few people that hasn't already been eliminated. Mike Norvell said no this morning. Um, I know that I, I think Steve Sarkeesian said no. I'm not sure. And someone said D'Amico Ryans just because he played there, which, like, that would be cool. But also, he's in the playoffs right now and making – I was going to say making more money. He would make more money at Alabama. But I think that's an interesting one, honestly, if if they lose mm-hmm. or lose badly. And he's just – I mean, I'd be tempted. But without further ado, we're going to go through some of the AFC teams, each of them that are playing, and then also the Ravens go through their strengths – an X-Factor for them, and then an Achilles heel, which I have dubbed the Chris Conti Award for <laughs> my least favorite player on defense growing up. So since you're here, I'll let you lead off here. The Ravens, I said for their biggest strength, just the balance between rushing and passing. Obviously, that lands at the feet of Lamar, but 5.6 yards of carry on the ground, 7.9 yards per attempt through the air, other players had bigger raw numbers than Lamar, but no one was more consequential to winning games because of that balance. Yeah. Uh, so we've got, like I, I just told you earlier, I mean, we uh, just got the news that Andrews is back at practice. We mm-hmm. don't know if he's going to be back necessarily for the divisional. I mean, it's not that big of a deal if he's not. Well, I mean, 
I'm just saying that he, he is a huge deal. But sure. I mean, that being said, uh, he's a huge asset asset to the passing game. He caught the most receiving touchdowns on the team. But like you said, I think X factor is going to come down to Zay Flowers and or Andrews uh, when it comes to that that passing attack. And then, yeah, I mean, Achilles heel. I'm. What do you think? Because I feel like I'm. Just well, I mean, I, I, I said the running backs just because I think the best ones are hurt, whether that's from the beginning of the season or towards the end with Keaton Mitchell being banged up. Like, I don't I think part of the problem is that they don't have a significant one. I would say, honestly, just the experience of the receivers, because I think Odell got stronger as the year went on but you're still trusting injured Mark Andrews and a rookie mm. for a lot of your passing offense. They're both great. Zay Flowers was, because Puka exists, I can't say the best rookie wide receiver, but like, also, did you see that Puka made second team all pro? No, I didn't. He made yeah. second team all pro. Man, I mean, I'd, I'd say he deserves it. He, no, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, he set the rookie record for receiving yards, and I think that he is the real Did deal. They, they moved the goalpost on that because it was it was Jefferson and then Jamar Chase, but then they started counting pre-merger. Pre-merger. And so it was some jag-off from, this, like, 1968. What the hell? Brooklyn, <laughs> Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah, no. But, no. They don't have a glaring weakness. It is more so... The warts of years prior, Lamar mm. not being able to get it done, and then the reliability of those receivers and making sure they stay healthy, especially in the case of Andrews if he is playing and Beckham. Yeah, but, no, I think the last real loss they had in the the regular season was due to the receivers not being completely competent against the Steelers. I just, yeah, no, it, it, it's going to come down to them being reliable options for Lamar in the passing game. The Bills. Biggest strength, obviously, is uh, Josh Allen and Sean McDermott's motivational skills. But I think the bigger story here, do you know... So over his last 10 games, Stephon Diggs has been averaging 50 yards a game and has two touchdowns. He has been, like, mysteriously phased further out of this offense. I, I don't know what to make of that. And there's also something to be said of the fact that they won five games in a row after Diggs started to become a lesser part of the offense. Yeah, no. I mean, that's it's really perplexing, to be honest with you. Uh, I know a lot about it because uh, he got me bounced in the first round in fantasy mm -hmm. because of that. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I... Is he washed is the question because it's I, like... No, I mean, he still had a, by receiver standards, a good season, and he was top 10 in targets, I believe. But, like, the fa again, the fact that they continue to win these games, granted, they were close. They almost lost to both Easton Stick and Bailey Zappi, but they didn't. And that propelled them up to the second seed, and I feel more confident about them than anyone else left in the field in the AFC besides the Ravens, which I think speaks to the AFC more than the Bills. But, like, even looking through it, they're, do you know who their leading sack getter this year was? Uh, man, can I guess? Yeah. You're, uh, you're going to get it wrong. I was going to say uh, Greg 
R, what's his name? Greg Rousseau. Rousseau. No. Yeah. He's like fifth. It's Leonard Floyd. Oh, shoot, man. I could have gotten that, actually. Okay. <laughs> but even him, it was... I am familiar with Leonard Floyd's I name. I am familiar with his work. He is a specialized pass rusher. His win rate was still under 10%, despite leading the team in sacks, so it was more of a luck thing. The point remains... Mm. Their defense has shored up. I, I think it's a lot due to their coverage ability. So they're coming up against the Dolphins, who I'm not in love with their offensive line to begin with, so I don't think it'll be that big of an issue. Uh, but, shit, they could have lost that game, too. That they won for the division. So I think, ultimately, their biggest Achilles heel is turnovers. I mean, that applied in that game, too, with Allen throwing two into the end zone. But... If they can limit it to one and then like a recovered fumble, they're so much better than the Dolphins without Phillips and without Bradley Chubb. Yeah, no, I'd agree. Hang on to the ball and you got it. I I would say that they will get to it, but I think that they can smack around anyone to get there except for the Ravens. Uh, the Chiefs. So much to be said about what you define as a strength for them because it's Mahomes and... Stats aside of, like, the overall offense dragging down some of the numbers and the efficiency-based metrics, like, it's Mahomes. He has, he's not injured. It's still him. And if you are super confident about betting against Patrick Mahomes in the playoffs, I don't believe you. So, that being said, the biggest X factor for them is to have any receiver ready to take over and whether that's Kelsey, I put down Rasheed Rice, and I have the same qualms about that as I do of Zay Flowers, where trusting a rookie in the playoffs in any situation, whether it's a quarterback, which we'll get to with Stroud, or it's a wide receiver, you're asking a lot for someone who has never played in that environment. And Rice has gotten better throughout the year, but even he is not so much a deep threat as he is a short and intermediate buzzsaw where... I said this about Darius Tony before too, but like literal juke you out in a phone booth mm. kind of guys where Rice can help them move the sticks and even Kelsey in this diminished form can, but they do not have a downfield passing game because I don't think Mahomes trusts Scantling or Tony. <laughs> I mean, would you? No. <laughs> Come on. MVE. MVS is, is uh, the opposite of reliable. He has two plays a game where he just looks crestfallen on the bench. And it's like, that's bad from a wide receiver. They should be happy because they caught the ball. Mm. Um, Ultimately, the defense, while I do think sometimes can get picked on because of how it is run, if they're playing against a team that will destroy you in man coverage, good luck because... I think a lot of their strength is going to lie in the ability to rush, which Spagnuolo likes to do, and guys like Ward to hold up on the back end. But I think the biggest thing is their reliance on Kelsey because I think that they've discovered throughout the year that they can't do what they did even last year when they won, which is funnel to him for 1,400 yards. Yeah, no, they're going to have that, to come up with something new. I think they're they're in the process of doing it. They were doing it during the regular season, and... And I, th- I think they're doing some trial and error right now because some of the, some of the stuff was not working. It feels like um, like a boxer who's fighting above his weight class where it's just like, listen, like I know you can do, you think you know what you can do, but now that you're 
in a in a division that you don't belong, it becomes a lot harder. And a lot of things you do become less consequential. Your punches don't land as hard. Kelsey does not land as hard as he wants used to. Texans. Their strength is CJ Stroud and anytime that he touches the ball. Stroud had five interceptions this year, and I believe three came in one game. And going off of uh, stats, he averaged about 273 yards per game. And if he had played every game this season, he would have led the league in passing yards. So the offense, even when it's just Nico Collins and like the resurging Noah Brown, I guess he had four games that were good enough to talk about, but it is the other end that matters the most for them because especially going up against the Browns, whose offensive line is a strength and the reason that Flacco is able to perform that he is. Uh, Will Anderson's banged up. If he plays, I feel a lot more confident than if he doesn't. Jonathan Grenard's been great, but like having just him and Derek Stingley and then the rest of those guys, can you, can you name another Texans defensive player? <sighs> Other than Sting, oh, uh, Kareem Jackson. There Kareem you go. Jackson, the guy who tries to kill people. But yeah, <laughs> I think health, which I, we say all the time on here, but health means everything, especially once you get to the postseason. And Will Anderson has been, by just about all metrics, a top ten edge rusher this year. Well worth the pick they spend on him, and to have him to have a chance of actually pressuring Flacco, which I guess we'll just talk about now. I think that America is going to lose millions on uh, Flacco's backo. And while the Browns' defense can go up against anyone, I think their, their biggest X factor is just Flacco's audacity and whether or not he's still willing to do everything that he's been doing during the regular season in the playoffs. Offensive lines helped him a ton. It's the best offensive line he's ever played with. Shout out the 2013 Ravens, but this is pretty damn good. He had 300 yards and a half. Like, none of this makes sense, but if you're the Texans or anyone else going up against this team, you're going to be lucky to get to 20 points. So if you do, and if you are able to score even a little bit, shut down Amari Cooper. That's probably their biggest weakness on offense. Flacco knows he can get it to Cooper whenever he wants, and it speaks to Cooper's greatness that that still happens over and over again. But shut him down, and I think things are going to get way more complicated for Flacco. And I think that in the postseason, a lot of those effort balls are going to turn into interceptions rather than just long PIs. Yeah. Next, Dolphins. Their biggest strength is the fact that their receiving threats can own a game on their own. Waddle hasn't really done it this year, but obviously Hill has, finishing first in receiving yards on the year. Uh, the biggest X factor for th those two specifically, per PFF, Waddle and Hill are the two best receivers in the league against zone coverage. And I think that facing the Chiefs is a very bad matchup for that sake because I know that Steve Spagnola is comfortable running man blitzes. Cover zero stuff with no safety help over the top. So if your offensive line can hold up long enough, Tua still has the quickest time to throw in the league. If they're able to get over the top, I think that as much as we've been counting them out, if this turns into a shootout, if neither of those guys gets hurt during the game and if Mostert's able to play, it's going to be a real struggle. 
because as good as the Chiefs defense has been, if they aren't getting enough pressure on Tua, Waddle and Hill will burn the shit out of that coverage. Mm, that's a good point. I mean, <laughs> I do like I do like me some Legarius Need though. I do love me some Legarius Need, but this is like if you've had Waddle in fantasy, you know he's been somewhat disappointing all year, never having that big blow up game. This would be the time. Again, he's a little hurt, but this would be the time to make up for the sins of the past here. And then the Achilles heel is their lack of pass rush at this point. Andrew Van Ginkle has been good, but like he's not enough on his own. I can't say Tua in good faith just because he has been top three in like every passing metric. But I think we all still think it's kind of him. I think I think we're all expecting a a Braxton Berrios legacy game here. That was what I was hoping for. That or Cedric Wilson. Um, oh, Cedric Wilson. There's somebody against the Ravens. Uh, they were doing a little segment, and they were like, you know, how every team has their X factor. Their X factor for the Dolphins was Cedric Wilson, and I was like, <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> That's someone who just looked at the uh, the cap sheet and was like, oh, this guy makes a lot of money. He's got to be good. He's but surely, surely Cedric Wilson is a elite is a, receiver. Is, Qualified for said honor. Uh, last and least, uh, the Steelers have no reason to be here. They are here because the Jaguars are a joke. But that defense without Watt, I guess, would still be their biggest strength. But without him, like, again, good luck. Their biggest thing and the only chance that I see, disagree, I, you can 100% disagree, I think the only way that they are actually trading punches with Josh Allen, even with how terrible the weather is going to be, to be fair. I think the only way they trade is if the Mason Rudolph just, like, gets mind-wiped and forgets that he's Mason Rudolph. There's no there's no way that we come out of it and Steelers won 23-20, to 20 and it was, like, speaking of, which is more unlikely, a Braxton Berrios legacy game or a Mason Rudolph legacy uh- game? Well, jokes aside, I'm going to have to say the Braxton Berrios one, unfortunately. He's been fine. It's Mason Rudolph. Yeah, no, I mean, Mason Rudolph, I think that he gives him a much better chance to win than Kenny Pickett. I mean, we're talking about 1% to 5%. The bar is underground there. Yeah, no, but I think the Steelers fans and their organization just had a hard time getting over the fact that Kenny Pickett is not better than Mason Rudolph. I think they got over it pretty fast since they're pushing for them to draft a quarterback this year. I mean, I see why. Kenny Pickett's not it. I'm sorry. If Pickens has another one of those four catches for 200 yards where it's just two bombs in the first half, then it might get tight because if the weather is as bad as it seems it's going to be, then even Allen's going to have a tough time. Uh, James Cook has been great during this winning streak, so... If it's a battle of running backs, Cook has been really good. I like Jalen Warren, but Cook has been really good. Mm. So I I would bet the under for one thing. And then it's such a wide margin that it makes me nervous that it's going to be like the Steelers are up three with two minutes left. But I think in good faith, we know it's we think we know at least that it's going to be the Bills. Yeah, there's a lot of propaganda going around about that run game because, you know, it might be... Wait, is it going to be a snow game? Do you know? It's going to be a win game for sure, and then I think a snow game 
I know it's supposed to be like it was hypothetically going to be in the 20s or 30s for mile per hour in wind and then cold as hell. Yep. And we're getting a lot of callbacks to that Le'Veon Bell legacy performance, you know. Oh, my God. If you don't remember, I mean, uh, Ravens legend Le'Veon Bell. He put up a lot Chiefs of numbers. legend Le'Veon Bell. In, like, the same scenario that we're going to be in. And people are trying to live through uh, Najee Harris in this one. I don't think it's going to happen. But, you know, maybe I'm just a hater. Maybe I'm just a hater. Well, that's known. All right. Coming back, we will go through the same thing, but for all of the NFC. Awesome. And we're back. So, moving on to the NFC. Starting at the top, the Niners. Their strength is everything. Um, not much else to say on that front. They have the best skill position group in the league. Uh, McCaffrey, Debo, Ayuk, um, and Kittle, two of which are first-team All-Pros along with Williams on the offensive line and everyone else there being solid at least. The biggest X factor is offensive line staying healthy. A lot of their problems this year, particularly with Purdy, have arisen when uh, when Trent Williams is out. So, you know, it's an obvious corollary. Trent Williams stays healthy, whereas the offensive line stays healthy. McCaffrey doesn't have any lingering concerns from when he had to come out with a calf injury. And you are... Almost certainly, at least in the NFC Championship game. My only concern would be Purdy having a snowball game like he had against the Ravens, where it's four interceptions and then Darnold is in. Barring something to that effect, I don't see anyone in the NFC seriously challenging them. Yeah, I mean, there's less comp when it comes to the NFC, in my opinion. So I think that there's very few teams that could compete. I think it's top-loaded across the league where, I mean, it was a few weeks ago, but coming into uh, to the last stretch where Lamar cemented his his MVP case, I mean, both of these teams are top 10 DVOA all-time. Like, it's the Ravens and it's the Niners, and then everyone else is trying to play spoiler, and the only chance I think that any of those teams have is if they have a quarterback better than those two, and that limits it to... Maybe two teams. Those oh, and both of them are in the AFC. So, Cowboys, a little bit more interesting for a reason that we talked about earlier, particularly being McCarthy. Their biggest strength is Dak to CD. CD was only fifty yards off leading the league in receiving yards. He is now a top three guy, led the league in receptions, first Cowboy ever. So. On offense, I am not concerned. Even going up against the Packers, Jair has not been the same guy he was over years past, in my opinion. So they're going to have that going. And if that's their X Factor, one of the guys I put is Brandon Cooks, just because if they have one other guy producing, I, I think it'll be easy, at least on offense. And then as far as them covering the Packers receivers, I said Stephon Gilmore just because I know he's banged up, and the plan right now is to play with a harness on his shoulder, which sounds painful, and that's when you're not playing NFL cornerback. So I think other than Gilmore's shoulder and the issues on defense that will raise, Teron Bland, first-team All-Pro, but also, like, he can't do it by himself. So that and then Mike McCarthy being Mike McCarthy and being responsible for some embarrassing moments in Cowboys history already, but 
if they come in, if the Packers come into Dallas, into Jerry World, and beat them again, and it's not even Rodgers this time, I think McCarthy's gone. So that specter looming over you, combined with the fact that McCarthy himself is already liable to make questionable decisions, I think could be an underrated factor, but I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, if he makes another blunder in the playoffs this year, I think it becomes kind of apparent that if if he can't win with this team, it's not going to be very many teams, and he's not going to give you the best chance to win a, a Super Bowl, and that's the ultimate goal for every team. I mean... They have to know that. You could say, like, uh, he took them to the playoffs or whatever, but that's not what, what teams care about at the end of the day. It's about the Super Bowl. And that's, if he can't give you a shot for that, it's like, you know... That, Especially with a guy like Jerry, especially coming off of easily the best season of Dak's career. A true all-pro season. Like, if they can't capitalize this year, I think it's... A lot of times for even, like, the really good teams, I think the championship or bust mentality can be reductive. And oftentimes it leads fans to not appreciate uh, how nice it is just to be a winner when half the league would kill to be where you're at. For the Cowboys, that is not the case. For the Cowboys, it is always Super Bowl or it's a disappointment. And whether or not that's fair, I don't really care. It only matters what Jerry Jones thinks. And I think that if McCarthy loses anywhere to anyone except the 49ers or Ravens, he's very much at risk of being gone. Lions. Biggest strength, a lot like the Ravens actually, is their pass rush balance. And I think that... Their toughness that they've demonstrated last year and going into this year will benefit them in a way that will almost counteract the fact that they're the Lions. So despite their inexperience, despite this being their first division title in 30 years, despite it being a group that is relatively new to the playoffs, they're at least led by someone who's not gospel to a Super Bowl. He's their biggest X factor. Whether or not he can perform to, like, the pre-Patriots Super Bowl levels will determine if uh, the Lions have a chance against someone like the Cowboys. I I find it impossible to pick them to come out just because their defense, their biggest weakness, is so bad. And for them to go up against the best offensive skill group in the league in the 49ers, if they get that far, I think it's going to be too much. So that will eventually get to them. Because I just don't think you can have a defense that bad and actually make it all the way. But I think that they will win a round or two against these weaker NFC teams. Yeah, they have a really concerning secondary, in my opinion. Like I, It's bad. I don't really think that there's any hope when it comes to relying on like Cam Sutton. And, uh, he was their big offseason addition. And man, uh, who, who even is at corner for them other than him? Um, oh my god, uh, Amunu, I, I don't know. Yeah, no, I know I have one in mind, but I can't pronounce his name. I'm not going to mess it up, but yeah. Did you see Aaron Glenn? Their defensive coordinator was uh, interviewing for the Titans job. Really? That shocked me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we'll see. I hope he's a good interview. And also, I mean, not to put a damper on it, it also might just be a, a Rooney Rule thing, mm-hmm. which is messed up, but happens uh bucks weird division winner kind of in the same vein as the texans 
Uh, their biggest strength is that healthy and talented defense that has pretty much everyone from their Super Bowl run. And then Mike Evans has completely remade himself. Uh, Chris Godwin is a fantasy murderer, but he's still talented. Offensive line still has guys like uh, Ali Marpet. So, like, I'm... I am confident that they will be able to score some amount of points, especially against a truly, truly bad Eagles defense. But I think Baker's looked a little banged up. They only put up nine points against the Panthers. They got really lucky that DJ Chark fumbled at the goal line. Otherwise, they would have lost the division. So if Baker's healthy in this game, I almost like intellectually truly think that they will beat the Eagles. Just because they've been so much better. They went from 4-7 and seven to 9-8 and eight and won their division. That is the complete opposite direction of momentum that the Eagles have been on mm. all year, which like we'll just talk about now. I mean, I'm, I was going to wait also, but I, I'd have to take the Bucks too. Like, especially with... I, I went on this tirade earlier this week too, but playing your players, your best players, when you don't have to, is just the dumbest thing that you can do as a coach or an organization because it's football. People get hurt all the time. And the fact that in the last game of the season when the most wear and tear is on these guys, you are putting Jalen Hurts and A.J. Brown, your two most important players, in harm's way is just asinine. Like, their strength is their raw skill position talent. A.J. Brown is better than Mike Evans. So take Mike Evans off the bus, off the Bucks, and everyone else on this Eagles offense, you could argue, is more talented. Goddard, Devonta Smith, their offensive line has multiple pro bowlers and all pros. Like, they have everything you asked for. They built through the lines. I think that Jordan Davis and uh, and Baby Rhino down there are have fallen off of throughout the course of the season, and that that has been noted by Eagles fans. Pass rush has gotten worse. Their defensive line is old. Their linebackers suck. What yeah, was what, what hasn't been noted by Eagles fans? Right. That was the the meme going around Twitter of, uh, was it? Slay and Bradbury it was on Slay the trash can. Being the trash cans and then uh, Bradbury retweeting it. Like, wow. They know. And that only worsens the vibes around everything. I I'll stand up for Darius Slay, but man, I can't I can't defend Bradbury. Man, he he kind of sucks. I'm not it, gonna lie. It kind of just feels like unless like Jalen Carter or just someone surprising on the Eagles defense actually comes out and does a game wrecking wild card game, like I don't really see this improving. Hmm. And if they somehow win this game, they stand no chance against whoever they go up against next. It's yeah, not because no. I don't think Hurts and Brown are going to get particularly healthier. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that they were built for the long run this year. It, it happens. I mean, they got they got hurt by injury and in the Super Bowl hangover and all that. But I think by most, I think they underrated how much age was going to play a factor. Oh yeah, I don't think they expected Slam Bradbury to get that much worse. And I don't think they thought their age along the defensive line would be as important as it is. But there you go. Rams. And I think this is the game that I'm looking forward to most just because I think McVeigh and Campbell are like, as human beings, as opposite as you can get, where McVeigh wears 
um, very tight pants, and Dan Campbell is Dan Campbell. So I think the biggest strength of the Rams is just the Stafford-McVay mind meld that led them to the Super Bowl the first time, where they are completely in sync as a quarterback and coach pairing goes. He is everything that McVay wanted Goff to be and more. And then additionally, like, their young defensive players, I think it it's gotten a lot more steam now that they're actually in the playoffs, but a lot of the Rams' young defensive players have way outperformed because I know coming into the year, there was stuff where people were, like, projecting them the wind under six games, under five games, but, like, Ernest Jones, your, your Kobe Turners, your... Uh, Russ Yeasts. It's now like at least a top half defense. And the biggest stat, and this is also their Achilles heel here, the biggest stat that jumped out to me is the Rams defense in passing coverage. So against pass plays is, I believe, still number one in the league. And then against play action, they're 29th. So that does... That does track when you think about it. Young players are more aggressive, point-and-shoot, built-built kind of guys that are ready to fly to a spot, but at the same time haven't seen as many plays and are more likely to get tricked. So if they can stay back and be more disciplined, disciplined on defense, I I've kind of fully expect this to be a game, and then it's just a matter of do you think that the Lions can outscore the Rams, which, like, my instant reaction is yes, but they also lost Laporta for the same reasons that the Eagles are stupid, the Lions are too. Why are you playing him? Anyway, I get it. So you have a 4% chance to get the number two seed. It isn't worth it. Man. Yeah, no, it's going to be a tough matchup, especially being that their Achilles heel is play action and they're playing the Lions with two great, or like probably the two That's been best Goss- backs. Yeah, and then the two best backs in that game are on. No disrespect to, well, okay, that's not true. My goat, Kyron Williams. Jameer Gibbs is the most talented running back in the, this game. Kyron Williams is better than David Montgomery. Mm. But. A little hot take. <laughs> I think that, yeah, his system does benefit him in the same way that uh, Jamal Williams is did last year. You know, he's kind of like the new Jamal Williams. I'm not saying he's that more, he's. He's more like uh, rookie year Jordan Howard. Yeah, I'm not saying that he's like going like back then. Jamal Williams talent level because, you know, he shouldn't even have had a touchdown this year, but uh I think that yeah, the system benefits him a lot. No doubt. I think that especially as a second year guy that this might be more sustainable than Jamal Williams, but that's just how I feel. Yeah. Last and this time not least. So For the Packers, their biggest strength is weirdly the passing game, which is something that has been mercurial from the start of the year to the end. But Love looked like a top five quarterback and by at least like EPA was ranked, I believe, three. So coming into this, if you're the Packers, that's why I would be so worried about Gilmore is because, you know, Jaden Reeve, Dante Vian Wicks, even like your Tucker Crafts and your Luke Musgraves, it's a talented, if inexperienced group. Now, this is the exact kind of team that is just happy to be here and will ultimately have at least half of those guys be letdowns just because it's their first playoff game. Your heart rate's going. Uh, Romeo Dubs drops one more pass than he should, and then it all snowballs from there, which is what will probably happen. But 
I think that if someone like Reed, who was great the second half of the year, can come out and be that guy, and it's like fourth quarter, Jane Reed has 110 yards and a touchdown, and the Packers leave by seven, then you're staring down the barrel of a big upset. Now, Joe Barry exists, so I think the, the Cowboys are going to put up 35, so it ultimately won't matter, but... I think that the Packers have enough offensive firepower to win this game. It's just whether or not that they hold up on the other end. Yeah, and yeah, I don't like their odds. I liked them a lot better until you gave that explanation, actually. <laughs> but man, it kind of reminds me about uh, how not equipped the Packers are on defense. But I think it's more of a sentiment for for especially the fan base that they made it into the playoffs more than anything with how young their team is. So, I mean... It is pretty impressive that they made it here, but I don't know about them making a run or anything like that. Do you think that Rodgers did the McAfee thing just because he was mad the Packers were getting attention for making the playoffs without him? <laughs> no, no, I think he uh, he had receipts on some shit that uh, it was it, it wasn't Jimmy Fallon. Who's who's the other one? It was Kimmel, and he was lying. Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah, no, he he came up with some some bullshit and Rogers, you know, being the salty little, little I think he just wanted the attention. I think he just got, I think he just wanted attention that's okay. But yeah, nobody likes Aaron Rodgers around here. This is an anti Aaron Rodgers household, <laughs> but yeah, I think that he just wanted attention. Obviously. We're All right. We'll be right back in just a second. We're going to run through some NBA games tonight as the weather's bad cooped up for a 10 game slate tonight. So Give a couple odds, some thoughts, and then we'll get out of here. And we're back. So, last and not least, uh, just running through some of the NBA slate tonight. It is terrible weather here in Chicago, um, and it's going to be pretty ravenous across the country tonight and then going into tomorrow. So, I figured run through a couple of the games tonight we have a 10 game slate so looking through looking at some of the odds just making a few picks couple of notes and then yeah but before that a couple of notes first Halliburton and Ja getting injured I think for the Grizzlies it doesn't change that much and honestly it puts you in a position where like they're gonna have a bad enough record to land at the top of the draft and so if you can get like a SAR or uh, an Alex SAR, or even like if you land around nine or 10, I know it, that's probably not going to work out that way, but I think Bain and Jaron Jackson are good enough on their own to not be as bad as some of the rest of the dregs. But if you get uh, someone quality at the top of the draft, then add him to jaw. That's kind of been the biggest problem that we've had with this team where over the last few years, it's been jaw. And then, Jaron Jackson's been the second guy. And now you can make the argument that Bain is because he's had the chance to prove himself on ball. But, like, even then, just going through, the most of the season has been predominantly led by Jackson and Bain. And because of Jackson and the supporting players around them, they have the eighth defensive rating in the league, but they still have the 29th defensive rating, and that's including the games that Jaw has been back. So they're 14-23. and 23. If they finish with the seventh or eighth, best odds and if they, even if they don't jump up you're adding a quality role player that otherwise it might have taken you two or three first round picks if you were going to go and get someone like OG Ananobi shout out to the Knicks by the way 
only lost, lost one game since trading for him. I made too much fun of that. But at, for Halliburton, it's a lot sadder for the wider NBA public just because, you know what, it interested me just because I was looking at it. His usage rate has steadily increased, and now it's at 31%. And somehow I don't think that's enough only because he's top 5% in the league in points per shot attempt. He has been in or at in the range of or at the 100th percentile in assist percentage and assist to usage. He does not turn the ball over nearly as much as someone that you would expect to in that situation. He is a part of every single one of MB, of Indiana's best possible lineups. He has been the star of this season. And when he plays with Heald, Brown, Obi Toppin, and Miles Turner, they are plus 20.5. While on the court, he is a plus 5.8. He has been the most offensively impactful star this season, and to be without him for any stretch of time is disappointing. But honestly, I've, I've thought just because of how bad the Pacers' defense is this season, even up to now, having time to adjust, they are still 27th which, like, it's better than 30, but, oh, damn, it doesn't look like it most nights. This gives them a chance to at least free up a few minutes. They need to play Jairus Walker. I need to know if someone on that team can play passable defense because right now it's, like, hypothetically Miles Turner and then everyone else out there to run and gun. And that's okay, but it is not a recipe for success in the long term. Couple quick things too. Kawhi signs an extension. Huge deal for Balmer, at least, uh, to be able to move into this new arena. You're guaranteed to have Kawhi, who I believe has been first in isolation efficiency this year. He is back to his dominant self. And while he might be moving into that LeBron stage, where later in his career he can only put in the defensive effort he once did for spurts, as opposed to locking down an entire game, that's still something. Clippers. I owe an apology. They have been the best team in the league, bar none, since the last 25 games. Harden, George, and Kawhi, I believe, are all still shooting above 40% from three in the time that is being referred to there. Now, their strength of schedule isn't great, but they've moved into ninth on offense and 11th on defense. And as we know... Teams that are able to get into the top 10 in both of those are some of our strongest contenders. Every single year, among them right now, Boston, OKC is third and six. Boston is one and two. Philadelphia, eighth in offensive, fifth in defense. Minnesota, first in defensive. Funny enough, only 18th in offensive, but put up a strong showing against the Celtics a couple nights ago and have had the hardest strength of schedule to this point, meaning they're only going to face easier defensive teams as we go. So... Good on the Clippers, good on them for locking up a significant part of their future. But if they don't get George too, I am really curious about what that looks like in the offseason or even, I can't say the trade deadline. They've been too good, but keep an eye on that going into the offseason. Last, don't need to spend much time on the fact that the NBA conducted a study that said that load management has no tangible impact on injuries. It's kind of funny and it kind of reads as sour grapes, but... Also, I have definitely read inklings and notes in the past that some teams actually 
most teams know that that there isn't that significant of a correlation, but it has been so standardized. And for certain players, as as much as I am inclined to actually believe what that study says, I I've never been as against load management as some others. I do think it's really goddamn lame some nights, and I think that pop like as funny as some of his dickishness has been in the past about the stuff when he would bench Parker, Ginobili, and Duncan in primetime games. It's like you're kind of not you're not doing a disservice to the NBA. You're doing a disservice to the fans. So and if this discourages it, along with the awards qualifications requiring you to play 65 games, then great. But then is what it is. Going into the games tonight, Kings are playing at Sixers. Fox still averaging pretty much a true 30 points a game. Embiid is out this game. Sixers are still favored by one and a half. I think without Embiid, Sabonis is going to put up 30, 30, and 30. So take the Kings easy. Pacers at Hawks. I cannot in good conscience pick the Pacers to outscore anyone while Halliburton is out. And I think against the Hawks, it's just going to be trade and blows. Trey Young is banged up. So if he doesn't play, then it's just a battle of the benches for teams who are going to be starting the TJ McConnells. And then at least it's DeJounte Murray on the other side. Rockets at Pistons. Rockets are favored by seven and a half. They are running in there with pretty much a full squad. Pistons up to three and 35. Again, they would still have to lose only or win only six games to break the record. As we've talked about before, I still think that's very possible and that's not changing tonight. The Trailblazers are 15 and a half point underdogs at the Timberwolves tonight. They just lost to the Thunder by 62 yesterday. I don't think it'll be that bad, but they might score 70 points again. Magic are playing at the Heat. No Butler, no Caleb Martin, no, and maybe no Hero or Lowry tonight. So Magic for me, easy. Clippers are at the Grizzlies. Womp womp. No jaw. It might be a blowout, but it's eight and a half points. I think at home they can play passable enough defense, but without Marcus Smart too at the point of attack, I think Harton might go for 40. So Clippers are there. The Warriors are at the Bulls. I do think it's kind of interesting that today, I don't know which team we feel better or worse about. The Bulls are 3-0 since Levine and Vooch have returned. So now I did get the uh, the is this team good enough article that we get once per year from the Bulls. I'm going to answer it now. No. If Levine really wants to be a Laker and if LeBron really wants Levine to be a Laker, please let him go because... I will take any amount of assets. If we can get Austin Reeves, I would cry. But realistically, it's going to be like Terry Rozier, and it's going to be the exact same thing. But without Draymond, I feel more confident in the Bulls, honestly, in this game. And they're favored by three. So, Hornsher at Spurs. No one should watch this game except for the fact that LaMelo might be back tonight. I believe he is projected to play. So, minutes restriction, but for his warts and for the fact that the Hornets deserve to be relegated. Having LaBelle back is good for the league. I'm excited. Uh, didn't talk about the Wemby triple-double, but like he's a better point guard than anyone else on that team. They should continue to let him operate at the point of the attack. If, and if that means that he starts averaging like eight assists, then he just becomes even more impossible. Raptors are playing at Jazz. Siakam's questionable. Jakob Pertl's out. Marketing's going to eat 
I think the Jazz are bad, but without uh, Siakam, it's going to be primarily guard play for them. So honestly, I would take the Raptors in that just because I believe in quickly and Barrett to dominate some of the Jazz's weaker defensive guards. And then finally, Pelicans are eight and a half underdogs going into Denver. Each of their three most important players, Ingram, Zion, and CJ McCollum, are all injured, so or at least day to day. So, albeit the Pelicans are 11 4 in their last 15 and absolutely laid it on last night against uh, not the Celtics, but they have been way better than, again, I need to walk it back because I was mean to them and I was mean to the Clippers after trading for after trading for Harden. And as much as I like to take a victory lap, they just knocked the socks off of the Warriors two nights ago and looked way better than the whole time with everyone healthy, including like your Nances and your Trey Murphys. They are kind of unstoppable. I would trade my liver for even like Dyson Daniels if they want Levine or something, but against the Nuggets, not fully healthy. Nuggets are going to roll. And that is all. 10 games tonight. Stay warm. Don't drive if you don't have to. Sorry, Brendan. <laughs> yeah, I will be driving home. So Drive slow home. But otherwise, <laughs> I have nothing left to say today. One thing before I go, um, I read, did you see the story about ESPN um, and all the Emmys that they had to return? I did not. So, okay, I guess I'll get into it. So apparently, it was primarily for college football and uh, a bunch of Emmys that they won for game day. A ton of them had to be returned because for many years, and I think it applied to Sports Center and some of the anchors on there too, for many years, on-air personalities were not allowed to be included in the, in the awards list or the like awards reception list for these shows. It was only producers... Uh, and like directors, yada, yada, because they wanted to avoid double dipping where someone could win for hosting and then get another Emmy for being a part of the crew. So what ESPN was doing was using fake names to be able to award, hold on, ESPN fake Emmys. They were using fake names to, to secure Emmys for guys like Lee Corso, for guys like Kirk Herbstreet, for guys like Dirk, here we go. Okay, here are some of the fake names they used. They didn't even try that hard because they wanted the initials to be the same. Kirk Herbstreet is Kirk Henry. Lee Corso is Lee Clark. Desmond Howard is Dirk Howard. Tom Rinaldi was Tim Richard. Sam Ponder was Stephen Ponder. Chris Fulton, or Chris Fowler was Chris Fulton. Uh, Shelly Smith was Shelly Saunders. So... It's pretty funny, but I also just wanted to bring it up because it is kind of amazing to me that things like this are still able to happen. Really? For real, though? Like, it's also disappointing, too, because some of it was for SportsCenter and some of those Emmys had to be returned. And just as someone who grew up either in the morning or coming home from school and watching SportsCenter and realizing that they were doing this kind of shady shit behind the scenes was uh, disappointing, but altogether not that surprising coming from ESPN. Mm -hmm. All right. That is all. Brendan, you have anything else to say before we get going? No, I do not. Thank you for joining me, buddy. Of course. My pleasure. Yeah. 
Uh, everyone, stay warm, stay safe. Thank you for listening. Listen to other, all the other shows here on the Aletheo Network. Thank you very much, and have a great weekend. See you on Tuesday.